Howdy, folks. John Fries here. Welcome back to Down with the Dharma. And I'm rejoined by my good friend, Dot Fon, from the Blue Cedar community in France. And today we want to talk more, share more stories about uh, our life as monastics with the Sangha, with Thich Nhat Hanh. And that's our starting point. We might um, range around to different areas of topics that go beyond that, but at least we're going to start with that. Um, so how's it going, Dot? How, how is, uh, late November in France? What's, what's the weather like? What's the, the vibe, the scene? The weather here, because we're in the middle of a forest, we have a lot of autumn leaves, the river, we live next to the river. So the rhythm of the river is a lot stronger in the cold season. Hmm. So it's a fit for, you got the fire, the wood stove burning. So it's a very cozy, contemplative, laid back feeling. And yes. How far is the river from, from your uh, property? We live on sort of like a, an island, actually, where it's one part is uh, surrounded by a canal. So there's water circulating. And the river is just behind the house. So it envelops us and it's sort of like an island. Hmm. For me, it's ideally if you look at the different um, elements, because we have water, we have fire, we have um, earth, and we have air, and everything seems to be circulating in a very yeah, natural way. Nice. You can hear the river, you can hear the sound of it. Oh, yes. Even here, I, yeah. I can, if I opened up the window, you can hear it roaring. Nice. That's cool. When, when I was at University of the West, there was a monk who was from the Sixth Patriarch Temple in China, and there's like a river nearby or a stream, and that that, that was one of the traditional practices is just listening to the sound of the river as the object of meditation oh yes here you can use the sky the river the leaf today i was just watching a cloud for about i have the luxury to do this about one hour <laughs> people ask me what i do yeah, look at that cloud. Look at clouds. <laughs> but uh yeah it's quite um you're in another dimension to say to say the least yeah um, so today, one of the topics we wanted to start with is our experience being monks who were mentored by other monks. Um, so for you, your main mentor was Tai Tan, and my main mentor was Tai Doji. So these are both senior monks who had been practicing in other traditions before they got to Plum Village, and then they... They came to Plum Village, and then when when you and I ordained as monastics, they were already there. And um, so, yeah, they it was when we were there. There wasn't the formal mentor system that got put in later, but so it's more kind of like we informally bonded. Like I bonded with Taidoji, you bonded with Taiyaktan, and that that became this kind of mentor mentee experience. Um. Some 
it was like there would be times when we would be attendant for Ty. Like there was like a rotation where we would take turns being an attendant for Ty. Um, and some people were asked to be more long-term attendants with Ty. So it's almost like they were, they were getting mentored by Ty more. Uh, whereas other monks and nuns would be mentored by senior, other senior monks and nuns in the community. So it seems like we were more in that second category, I guess. Um, so I'm wondering, like, in terms of like your daily schedule in France, like there's a daily schedule that we do as a group, like go to the meditation hall for meditation, do working meditation, do this, do that. Um, so were you just hanging out with Hayaktan like during your free time or were there like times where your schedule would shift from the group because you were like taking care of him or how did that work? Yes. Yeah. Nice question. Thank you for asking. Um, I was wondering before, I would like to ask you a question first. Huh? Okay. Because, um, I think for the people listening to the program, maybe what for you is the importance of having a, a mentor? Right? Mm-hmm. That could be, and yeah. I, and I after really, like my my relationship I had with Tayatan and even Tai. There was some moments I spent with him also, right? So share. Um. Yeah, it's like I remember the fir- when I first arrived at Flem Village. I was in Upper Hamlet. I got to Upper Hamlet, and I didn't realize at that point that Tai was living in the Hermitage was like, which was like a separate property. Like the monks are in upper Hamlet, the nuns are in lower Hamlet or new Hamlet. And Ty was in the Hermitage, which was like outside past the new Hamlet. So like my first day at upper Hamlet, I'm wandering around looking for Ty. Like, <laughs> Cause I want to like see him or hang out with him or whatever. Um, and it was like, it took a couple of days to realize, Oh, he doesn't actually live at upper Hamlet. He shows up at upper Hamlet, but he doesn't live at upper Hamlet. Um, and then it seemed like some monks and I don't know, it was like some monks and nuns had some karma with Ty where he would ask them to work on a project and he would supervise them with the project or some people would ask to be his regular attendant. They're his attendant more regularly. And for whatever reason, it's like that, that didn't, he didn't ask me to do a project that where he was supervising me. And the times when I was his attendant, we got along, but it was like, there was like, we didn't have a certain chemistry that it seemed like other, other monks and nuns had. Um, so it was like, I don't know. It wasn't my karma to be his regular attendant. Um, but it turned out uh, this monk Taidoji, who's this French monk um, who had trained in Japan for like a number of years before he came to Plum Village, like we we hit it off pretty well. Like when we hung out together, we just we had a lot to talk about in terms of practice, but also in terms of just what's going on in the community. And um, I don't know, it's just like a certain kind of chemistry. So I felt like a big part of the mentorship thing was just just the experience of hanging out, basically, and just enjoying each other's company. Um, but then, yeah, he would give me teachings, like just 
going through the normal day, he would like point things out. If I was doing something a certain way and it wasn't like in accord with practice, he would like point out to me, oh, you should try doing it this way. Um, so that was one important thing, just kind of informal pointing things out. Um, the, the thing that was most interesting was like the, the first practice I learned before becoming a monk was counting the breaths, focusing on the hara, the tantian and the belly. And that was the main practice I did during meditation. And it turns out that's what, that was the main practice he learned from his teacher in Japan. Like his teacher in Japan specialized in that practice, counting the breath, focusing on the hara. And the idea is that like generates breath energy in your body. And it also like is a way to sublimate the sexual energy. Like you're not, as a monk, you're not actively arousing the sexual energy. It's, just, it's more like it's just stored in your body. And if you do this practice of counting the breath, focusing on the hara, that generates breath energy in your belly. And when the breath energy is getting generated, the jing energy or it's like the jing energy doesn't manifest as sexual energy. It, it but it's like a, it's like you can feel it as energy in your pelvis that's getting sublimated into the energy in the belly, basically. And it's creating like this energy field that makes you have like an experience of pleasant sensation and it's not sexual, but it's like pleasant and just kind of an energy field. But it's also this experience of like, you're aware of the breathing in your belly as a rhythm. And so it's also, it's very much about rhythm and being on time, knowing when to be still, knowing when to act. If you are going to act like it's like you're hitting a drum, like you're making an action and it has impact. Um, and so Taidoji, before he became a monk, he was a modern dan He like was a professional dancer. Like he, he trained with <laughs> Bruce Cunningham. I'm yeah, also quite close to Taidoji also. So, I mean, when you speak about Taidoji, I think uh, I feel also connected with that. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Because Taidoji trained with Merce Cunningham, one of the father of modern dance in New York. And he was part of that um, Velvet Underground movement, he said, where there was like Warhol, the... the John Cage. Yeah, yeah. John Cage. Uh, yeah, all these different New York artists that emerged during that time, huh? and he went there to study dance. So. Yeah, and um, he told me like he, I guess he got into dance in France, and then he moved to the U.S. because he wanted to be in a dance company in the U.S., and then he wound up making it in the Merce Cunningham Company, which is like a big deal. And then he kind of went out on his own. He was like a hermit in Colorado, just. Uh, he was in a cabin in the forest with a wood stove and he was just doing his own dance as like a meditation. He was like leading a small company there. Then he moved back to France and he was leading a small company in France. And then someone told him, Oh, you should try this Zen meditation. I think you would like it. And he kept putting it off, but finally he did it. And he said like, when he learned to dance, he was focusing on his Hara, focusing on his Tantian and then when he learned to meditate from Shoto Harada Roshi, he told him to focus on the same point. And he said after doing a session, like a seven-day retreat, he was amazed that when he went back to dance, it was like 
he was totally in the groove. Like it wasn't, it felt, he felt like he hadn't taken any time off from practice. Like he just was dropping right back into the dance. So then that made him more interested in meditation. So eventually he became a monk. Um, yeah, Sanohara Roshi was a great Renzai teacher in, in Japan. Right. He was considered like the, the teacher's teachers, I think, because his practice was very, I guess, like a Sashin's was a specialty. Yeah, he's such a powerful teacher that, yeah, other teacher, other Zen teachers in the U.S. would go to him. His teacher was Mumon Roshi, who was like a big deal in Japan. Um. So I, I guess when I hung out with Taidoji, it felt like it was this experience where we're in touch with rhythm and in touch with like, are you on the beat or not? And then are your act. So when you're, when you're acting, is it coming from that centered place in the Hara? So it's like, we, we didn't even talk so much about meditation itself. It was more, just the way we interacted, it was like, are we interacting in rhythm almost as if it's a dance, but it's like, uh, so I felt like he was teaching me through the experience of rhythm and like, um, normally when I would go hang out with him, it would be like the first thing we would do is have tea. And so we would just be sitting in silence while he was making the tea and during that time, it was like our energies were starting to like connect with each other. And it was like, that was the first thing he was doing was like just being with each other and having our energies connect with each other. Tuning. Yeah. Tuning. And then based on that, then then we would start talking, right? And it, but again, it's like when, when we were talking, it wasn't even necessarily the content of what we were saying. It was more just the energy of what was happening. So it just felt like the whole time it was always like a practice like that. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I guess one of the main things I felt by being with him was that he was supporting me in my meditation practice because he was relating to me based on this more embodied intuitive awareness and more this feeling of like, I'm in my belly and I'm in touch with rhythm and whatever's happening, it's happening through this rhythm. Yes. And it's also, there's an energy exchange going on yes. and it's like, so I'll like, you know, meditating twice a day for an hour a day, counting the breath, focusing on the Hara, all of that was informing how we interacted with each other, even though we didn't necessarily talk about meditation. It was like, yes, it was a, think, yeah. Yeah. I think people have to realize it's within the context of a, a Zen culture also. It's just not when you make a certain commitment to live as, as a monk and a certain tradition, it's a, a sort of full-time job you, you commit to. So it's, it's a little different than, I guess, like a, a conventional practice that we may think of. Like I have my sitting meditation time, or maybe I go to the Sangha, a weekly Sangha, a retreat every now and then. So I think the 
the environment which one is immersed in, I see this is where I link everything to the eight consciousness because because um, everything is being watered in that environment. Like a, what, I, what, what I would consider like a culture of awakening. You, know, you can't, the image I try to give people is like you can't grow mustard seeds on concrete. It's very difficult. The mustard seed, if you put it in a fertile soil, then um, like when, when you shared, I see like there's different dimensions. There's like our practice, there's like the, pre, uh, the trainings, the precepts, there's like the, the vows. And now like it's a little different than apprenticeship in the university when you do like an internship because you're just uh, doing it for like to learn like a skill or a job. But I think with an, an elder practitioner is through his own experience his path and you see him on a more or less a daily basis I and mean, you see the person in action and you see how if they're authentic or not authentic also i think these are all different things that sometimes if somebody is treading a spiritual path it's like you can see like a teacher uh during a teaching retreat but maybe you don't see him behind his, his daily life and that's where different um hypocrisy are created you know so i think we are very lucky in that context to live in this way where we everything was transparent you can't really it's very hard to live a lie in a monastery you know <laughs> i mean there's some things you can hide i mean you can always hide things but i think basically you know who people are you know i mean um yeah so like for you you felt like you had like a this mentor-mentee relationship with Taidoji, where you were actually, you felt like you were learning, you were progressing on your your path, you were walking your path. Yeah, it was like part of it was just camaraderie, right? Like where where we just were friends and we liked hanging out, talking to each other. So part of it, I think, was just enjoying the the fellowship or the camaraderie. Um, but then, yeah, another point was like he was mentoring me to be in the present moment, be in touch with my body, be in touch with my breath energy, be in touch with my spirit energy. And like, yeah, I had to go deeper into that experience. And so if we were hanging out together, if, if there was like, if the energy would build up and it would just go into like we're having tea and then we would reach a point where like it would just kind of be silence for a little bit. And it wasn't like an awkward silence where no one's talking. It's more, Oh, we're, we're just hanging out together and this silence is manifesting between us and we're allowing ourselves just to go into that and experience it. And then that silence would pass and then something would spontaneously come up and then, okay, now we're doing the next thing together. And that's, <laughs> uh, so it's kind of like supporting each other as if we were meditating together, but it wasn't during like a formal meditation time. Um, and then, yeah, other things were like just stuff going on in the community and different things that would come up in the community. And so, yeah, like if one of us had some emotions coming up around what was happening in the community. 
then it was just like a chance to process like what's happening in the community and like working with the emotion basically. Um, but then also like, because I had studied French and in middle school and high school, then he would ask me to go with him when he would teach in France, like to retreats for different communities. So I would go with him on the retreats. Um, so then it was the same kind of thing. Like we would, we would hang out with like a family that was hosting us and we would be sitting, sitting at a table, just kind of hanging out like the day before the retreat starts and we're just sitting there talking and, but then it would be the same thing would happen. There'd be a moment where kind of just, just silence kind of took over and we were all just sitting together in silence for a little bit. And you could feel like just kind of a wave of silence come through. And then it would, you could feel, okay, now the silence is past. It's time for something to happen. And then he would just start spontaneously speaking about something. And it was like, he was just right on the beat. Like he didn't miss the beat. Yeah. yeah when you share about Taidoji, I think what I really learned from him as an elder, elder brother, exactly like you said, it's like rhythm. Mm -hmm. I was really impressed how he was really in his body. Mm -hmm. That was quite something, a learning experience for, for me. And also like a surgical action, because I think he came more from Japanese Renzai tradition yeah. where everything is very precise. And like you said, everything has, like when you hit the drum, it has repercussion and meaning. And I felt like, um, I went to visit him a few years ago when we I drove Taipup Tree to, to Agadesh where he lives in. And um, it's funny how we influence each other because he, he told me, well, one thing I remember about you is because he would, I think, always try to ask questions to see where people were in their path, you know. And he said, I was always impressed with you because you never really when I asked you a question, you waited a long time and I didn't know whether you didn't want to answer, if you knew the answer or not, you know, and I think we, that left a little impression on him. And I said, well, we're, at the same time, we're sort of like influencing each other in the mentor-mentee relationship, which is, I guess it's like a good teacher, a good teacher always learn from his students. And mm -hmm. even though the students don't see it, you know, and um, yeah, so you sharing about Tai Doji brings a lot of, like, a lot of gratitude, heart heartwarming moments that I, I myself had with Tai Doji also. And I, yeah, I think I try to see everything that I do now is sort of like their energy that's continuing in a way, you know, that's expressing itself of course in a different way but i don't think if it weren't for for me i usually try to share the importance of having like kalyana mitra or people who has kind of walk ahead of us even i myself i try to find people who walk ahead of me to to continue my own path because i realized how we learn meditation now in different contexts like secular and I guess re religious, uh, there's less of this um, relationship, if you will, 
um, because I think because the, it's something that you can only get within that uh, culture and context, um, which is that we were very lucky because it was more like a 24 hour seven experience. Like for example, we have so many stories to tell you about Thai Tan, Thai and Thai Doji, but just, um, I think like you said, the different dimensions of being a, an attendant or being like a, a, a mentee to an, an elder, which I would think is a, it's like a sort of like a spiritual apprenticeship to learn a deeper dimensions of life than just um, um, doing, you know, <laughs> like you said, when you mentioned Tai Jesus, he had that capacity just to, to drop everything and just like a, a very powerful practices. You can do that, you know, if you're a Dzogchen master, <laughs> a Koan master, or uh, if you dwell deeply in the present moment with, through Tai's practice, you can just drop everything, you know. I like the expression that you 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 die to everything, you know, you drop and you die to everything. And I felt like Tai Doji, he had that, he embodied that energy. And he still does. Uh, when I saw him, I was like, that energy was still alive. Huh? And um, for me, like everything you said echoes, I think um, there's different things we do, like daily stuff that, that involves, like a, I remember with Tai, you have to be there at uh, four or five o'clock when he woke up. If you're if you're if you're chosen, if it's your turn to be Ty's attendant, yeah, then you you have to show up before he wakes up. Yes, yes, and like you said, because Ty he lived in his hermitage and he was really spending different times, different places, um, uh, sporadically in different moments. He couldn't really invest and all his students, and I think most people, that's why Thai's teaching is based on the Sangha also. I think he's trying to teach us something that's much more long-term and much more deeper to arrive at than the, the teacher-student relationship that traditionally we we grow from. And um, yeah, I remember building me and Thai Pabdo and Thuong Im and another Vietnamese sister, uh, building the meditation hall. In his hermitage and that was the project that i think for me i really had that chance to really see tai in his daily life you know and uh, just like his whole her hermitage is very peaceful the way the trees are grown the way i think um, vietnamese zen is not too structured like uh, other forms of zen that's very i call it like a um natural anarchy things are just growing where they want you know it's not like a zen garden or <laughs> where you can have the rocks like exactly where it's supposed to be it's like sometimes things will just grow from a wall a plant and i think that's the beauty of vietnamese team zen it's very spontaneous you know not not too controlled if you were very spontaneous and i think tai he embodied that spontaneity but at the same time very structured very clear and very but I, I remember, this is one story, I think on the deeper sense, I think why we spend time with him, 
for me it's more like a impregnation in different tradition we call it like in the darshan and the hindu tradition and um We've got maybe cultural conditioning of your <laughs> behavioral psychology. Where, I mean, you're just in that environment. And you're in, you're in, imprinting. Yeah. Yeah. Imprinting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah like uh, impregnation, imprinting. Uh, when you're just like, um, you're like the seed in the soil. And when everything has just happened very naturally because you're in the environment. And I felt like... Um, I think he he gave me those conditions and the only thing that was really left was the how receptive I was. I guess if I wasn't receptive, then you wouldn't learn anything. We know that's basic uh, uh, attentional training. I was a very, I always joke to people. I said, I learned French for four years in America. Couldn't even speak one word, you know, because <laughs> my mind was never there, you know, I was never receptive. So. I think the Zen training is sort of similar and they just few different moments. Like, um, I remember the first time I took Thai, I was his attendant and, um, when it was raining, he usually, we take the car to go to the big Zendo, which is about like a, a short drive huh, from the still sitting hut. And I remember I was such in a panic in a hurry to take him there because we were late. People were waiting, but you know, Tai, I mean, he does everything mindfully. <laughs> Sometimes he looks slow, but he's very fast. I always joke to people and you can get very tired following him, even though it's like you, you walk into a time warp or like a black hole or something. You, know? <laughs> you can't really explain. <laughs> I can't really explain it with it, but I was such an, I had the habit energy of starting the car and we know like, how do how we are we conditioned to start car in society? We turn on the radio, start the car. Maybe we're already thinking about our destination. And I remember that moment because he felt my had energy, huh? and he was trying to just tame the ox. I was the ox in that moment, and I just remember he gently placed his hands on mine. And and in the Zen practice, we have a gatha for starting the car. We're putting the keys in the car with our mindful breathing. When the car goes fast, I go fast. <laughs> so I went back to my gatha. And like you said, it was very similar. And then we just came back to like the so different levels of the present moment until everything was just like non-local. I couldn't find myself anymore. I usually try to joke to people. It's like in that moment, even to this day, I can memorize everything that happened, every smell, every odor, every sensation. And I tell people, a liar consciousness does record everything. So be careful. <laughs> be careful what you do. Hi, <laughs> <Yeah>. fucking brother. <laughs> and I remember just him. This is the first time I really learned com- compassion, actually, because he... He didn't tell me, like, uh, he didn't like reprimand me. He didn't like tell me, oh, I'm a bad practitioner. And that was it. And I just started the car, something very deep, but at the same time, very simple and very impactful. And we drove and to this day, 
I have never started a car unmindfully, to tell you honestly, you know, because I that energy has really is still alive at at this moment, you know. But different moments I remember, especially the early years when I really wasn't trained to be present, you know. I think the thing that really impressed me with the Plum Village tradition is the the continuous practice and the presence in daily life. I think that's one of the Thai's big contribution to mindfulness, uh, Buddhism in general, that um, we can maintain this. And I remember now, you know, Tayak Tan's hut was next to Thai, still sitting hut. It's called Floating Cloud. And I'm pretty sure you had tea with Tayak Tan, these opportunities. Like you said, very easy. And the beauty and the simplicity of Zen, just a teacup. And at the beginning, because we know the monkey mind asks a lot of questions. So it was the first time I saw small teacups and he was just doing his ritual without, it wasn't even a ritual. It was just making tea you know, in, in pure presence. And he wouldn't say anything. And I would just ask him questions. I say, well, what sort of tea is that? And he was just suddenly like um, discreetly like, get like a bag of Lipton tea out <laughs> and he would like fill the cup and I, I didn't understand this until like uh, years later until when he explained to me <laughs> when I really knew how to do the tea ceremony you know but I, I, did, I didn't know this at first but he would just give me that, that Lipton tea and he would just serve that tea in the tradition as in a very small cup you know where you can smell the tea and just uh, appreciate it and I realized he gave a lot of that herbal tea to his guests. <laughs> and finally, when I was his attendant for years, I remember in Vermont, we were just, we eventually just started. I learned, he, he taught me how to serve tea and we would just do it quietly. Sometimes for like even an hour, 30 minutes without saying anything. And that's where I really felt, wow, this is, this is the practice, you know? Um, and I finally asked him, like, um, why, why at the beginning you gave me that Lipton tea? And he said, you think I'm going to waste like a hundred dollar teas on you? <laughs> You're sitting here asking all these yeah, questions. You're asking me a hundred questions. <laughs> you enjoy your tea. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the, the, the attendant... The role of the attendant or the mentee is just, like you said, you're living all these different dimensions of life and that's all a part of it. You know, sometimes we think that uh, a practice is like, it needs to be uh, sacred or, you know, you, you, and I think that in the Zen tradition is a little bit different because it's within the daily life that you can enter into very uh, deep levels of the present moment, what I call like the depths of the present moment until there's like non-locality, huh? You don't know where you, where you are anymore. I usually try to say, you can't even say if it was like a, a thousand years before or a thousand years after, and you're free, your mind is free. And it's, um, Thai, he, he once called that in Vietnamese, we call that Ting Vei, the Zen flavor. He said, when you really want to know if your practice is ripe, then that Zen flavor 
will start uh, perfuming the air, he says. But if the practice is, is not ripe, then like in the the Tao Te Ching, we say we usually need a lot of words. <laughs> and I think from that, I think what they taught, especially for me, what I learned is this simplicity and this like um, this presence that I started applying in my daily life when I disrobe. I said, hey, hey I, I can do that in the supermarket. I was like a, a stock boy in the supermarket. I said, I turned this into a zendo. <laughs> my practice is stable enough. And I said, I said, I can do this in a big corporation. I turned this place into a... And I, feel, I started realizing this is like really what we... For what I, my understanding of the Bodhisattva's vow, you know, it's like... I heard recently that as the Dalai Lama, like, where does he wish to, how does he wish to be reincarnated when he dies? And his answer was very powerful. He says, where there's suffering. And I said, it's kind of like the opposite of how we function, you know, <laughs> where there's suffering. I want to go, go away, you know. <laughs> yeah, get me out of here. There's a funny story just to end. And I'd like to have your, your feedback. Um, Taidoji told me this story. And he said, because uh, we were just reminiscing about Tayaktan uh, at his little hermitage where he lives in France. And he said, Tayaktan, he taught me a lot also. And he said, there was one day, you know, at Plum Village. Plum Village, I think, is the retreat center now that's most visited in the West behind, I think, Spirit Rock. But Spirit Rock is not a community. I think Plum Village is a spiritual community. And there's like a, people there. You know, practicing that day and night, a monastic community and a small lake community. And Taidoji said, after one retreat, I just wanted to go back into silence because we serve a lot during the retreat. You know, there's also how we, our life is, is, is of service. Like Taidoji said, that's part of transformation also. But Taidoji said, I, I had, I heard so much suffering, I just needed to, some quiet time to recirculate my energy and a, a, a stranded a, a stray dog came into to plum village and he said at that moment i wanted to like run away from the dog you know and taikatan just made a joke he said taidoji don't run away from that dog <laughs> because <laughs> it suffers also you know <laughs> and then taidoji said wow you you, you see suffering is everywhere. It's just not in humans, but it's in dogs and animals and plants, you know. And we, we need like a heart of compassion to meet it, more or less. <laughs> yeah, to keep staying present. Yeah, yeah. I, so it's interesting that... So one of the words you're using is, is uh, impregnate, right? Which obviously, normally we think, oh, that means you're having sex with someone and sperm and egg are getting together and there's, yeah. Um, so, but as monastics, we're not activating the sexual energy, right? We're, we're preserving our sexual energy. We're not choosing to arouse it and express it as a sexual thing. So then in the Taoism, we say, okay, well, that's your Jing energy. And so as a monastic, like we're preserving the Jing energy, um, and that that's kind of the foundation and then and then we're doing meditation where we're practicing awareness of our breathing and our body 
and that's building up this breath energy. And then that is helping us be in the present, helping us feel vitalized. And then that can help us get in touch with our heart mind, which is like the shin or the spirit, which is like this feeling of presence or stillness or silence. And so the idea then of when we're hanging out together as monastics, this idea of impregnation means not that we're exchanging sexual energy. It's more we're exchanging breath energy and spirit energy with each other. And it's based on, we're all preserving our gene energy and then we're all um, building the breath energy and the spirit energy. And so then just by hanging around, hanging out with each other, those energies are coming into contact with each other and resonating with each other, interacting with each other. And that it's, it's not something that's using your conceptual mind. It's more down in your body and, and also, yeah, just the experience of being present with each other as like energy field of awareness or a spirit. And then, yeah, so it's the practice is just to hang out with each other and have that, resonance happen with each other and then yeah then the people who've been practicing a longer time and have cultivated that energy and been able to sublimate it and have like this kind of deeper opening it's like okay there's some natural process of that person's like a mentor and you're a mentee you're hanging out with them because their cup is overflowing and but but yeah, it's like a symbiotic relationship. It's like they they need to be in community where people want to benefit from that energy, and then it's not like we're taking it from them. It's more we're resonating with them. Our energy is resonating with their energy, and that allows for the energy to be collectively held, and then also just for there to be more kind of a collective flow or resonance with each other. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I see it to frame it. I see it's just generating the four Brahma Viharas, like you said, through different forms of practices. Mm -hmm. And also, I like how you said it's not like we're just um, taking energy, but we're also producing that energy. It's just like a generator. And the generator, it produces this energy. And then after it overflows and it penetrates, the water penetrates into the earth, the water penetrates into the air. So it's a sort of um, how to see energy in the, from the lens of emptiness or into being. And at the same time, I would also even reduce it to like um, learning true love, like how to be completely who you are with a person. And for me, like I really had this chance with Ayakan because when he was sick, I took care of him. At moments when he was uh, almost dying at the hospital, when we didn't know that he's gonna die or make it. And I realized one day, like I would always consider myself his student and his attendant and his, you know, and he knows much more than me. I mean, his realization is much more deeper. Because uh, I think when you meet a master, you, you see that they, they walk the walk, you know, there's not some, but uh, there's a certain human element, but at the same time, a transcendence is very, 
more or less like you have one foot in the ultimate dimension and one foot in the historical dimension or I think the most beautiful thing is their, their eyes. When you look into someone, a deeply realized being, Tai, he said that once, he said, you know, you can read all the Zen texts or the sutras you want, but if you can look into like a realized being eyes, it will show you the way, you know? <laughs> the text can help you point the way, you know? It can point, it can give you some principles. But a being that has a digested the teachings, you know, and now using it as another form of energy, life energy, I think that level is a certain mastery. It's like seeing like a Michael Jordan play um, or like, <laughs> you know, uh, like a Beethoven that's death, make music. It's just something that you needs a lot of training, commitment. But I remember like one time when the doctor announced he only had a few weeks to, to live because Taiyo Khan had diabetes and his kidneys were damaged and he was like like 80% blind at that moment already, 70%. I remember I was there when the doctor announced like he only had, yeah, he said, you better change this kidney or you only have uh, two or three months to live. And he, the doctor just walked out and we were just sitting there said, wow, you must be in a hurry. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I got to tell three more people the same thing. I, 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 he said, wow, how can he be so cold? You can announce to somebody and you saw this human element in him that it's okay to be hurt, you know? He saw that. He, and we walked in the, in the elevator and as monks, you wear the robes. You're walking in the, like we were in Vermont, um, uh, the, the hospital over there um, in Dartmouth College that's man it's been so long and when we're in the elevator there's a little kid that was completely horrified at us we're like two bald guys wearing robes and the little kid was like four or five years old in the like holding on to his mom's dress and looking in the corner and we're, it was just us in the elevator and that moment taught me a lot because I it taught me about really the beginner's mind. And like that moment, like he looked at the kid and like he covered his hand on his face, you know? And you know, Tagitan had a very beautiful smile. Then he, he looked at the kid and the kid was wondering what he's going to do, you know? Then he like stuck his tongue out, you know? And it's like, wow, he was able to offer that to this kid after being announced that he, he would have a couple of weeks to live, you know? I said, well, that's something I would like to learn one day, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you just, as being, as their mentor or their tenant, you get to see also how they meet different moments, how they respond. Because Tai, he said, the Zen, especially the team master during the, the Vietnam War, they met that moment like with nonviolence, with like a lot of firm, a firm hand, but, but, the way they reacted was not a typical, like um, amygdala reaction, fight, flight, freeze reaction that we are, we are fallen to when we have don't have enough awareness or deep, deep mindfulness. I remember um, <clears throat> I was in Vermont. I was only there for like six months, um, and Tayakam was there, and I had to take him to an appointment. 
And so we were driving in the car. Um, and there was one brother that like, he was living within Vermont for quite a while. And like, it was like the brother was just kind of, it wasn't just high time. He would, he would get on people's nerves, this one brother. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so then we're in the car and, and he, my, my Dharma name was Fapno, right? And, and Tayak was like, oh, Fapno, so-and-so is such a, is such a pain, you know? <laughs> and I was still like kind of new to him. And I, so I was like, I was like, oh, he's like a Zen master. How can he have preferences, you know? And, uh, so I was kind of quiet. I didn't, whereas like if I could do it over again, it was like, oh, like he trusted me enough in my practice and like my my own development psychologically and stuff that like he could trust me as someone who could get like oh yeah this person's a pain and he just needs to get it off his chest and just wants someone to bounce back with him on it you know like and so like if i could go back in time i'd be like yeah he is a pain (laughs) but it like it wasn't judgment it was more just oh this guy's a pain (laughs) I think the I think I think what I learned is like like we all had different relationship with Tan, Han, Shuam, and Tan, but I think they all met us in the way we needed to be met for to have a relationship. I think um, I remember even after we did Tan's twenty year anniversary, and all the old disciples that knew him came online. And I was listening to all of them. Tayotan's sister came online also, and she was so touched. She said, I can't believe after 20 years, there's still this love, this energy alive. And that was, and I realized, I used to joke because I said, well, I thought that I had a special relationship with him, but actually he just met everyone like that. And there was no, you know, like in this case, there was no preference like I, I'm going to, I prefer Faptang, Faptango, you know, or I really felt, wow, he, he developed a, a loving relationship with, with these people, for them to come 20 years after to meet online and just to share about what they, what they learned or moments that really touched them or helped them on their path. And I said, wow, he gave that to everyone he met, actually, from the kid in the elevator to people who he had a long-term relationship with. And I think, um, and I think Tai Thich Han, he had that capacity regardless of where you were on your path. You know, I think he's re- reached reach another level of mastery that, <laughs> because it, like you said, just witnessing during the retreats, and how he can use that his energy and the collective energy to transform and heal thousands of people with the practice and with the sangha again within the context and I, for me it's just it's just like the things that like now that i'm older and now that i've, I've done my different um, learnings with different uh, traditions uh, i have a much more of a appreciation for it, you know, and um, the vision that I had of a, 
on an awakened society. And Thai was very much influenced by like Vietnamese Zen, the different dynasties, and the Chinese dynasties also that where Zen really flourished. And I think it has this capacity if the culture is, um, is, is present. You know? Yeah, if the culture is open and tuned in, then yeah, it can become something that's manifesting throughout the culture. Yeah, it's like everyone's attuned to the flavor of it. They're not caught up in their heads. It's like they're they're in touch with their body and with their own three energies. And so it's like, yeah, it can become a shared collective energy. Yeah. I, I always usually go back because we, met, we always say like in the Avatar Saga Sutra, like a flower is made of non-flower elements, like in the one, there's the many, and the many is the one. And I think even the teacher and disciple student is made of teacher and the non, non-element teacher and disciple. It needs the community, it needs the practice, it needs that context for it to flower. Because I, I can't imagine myself just me and Thai or me and Thai Tan. I think it would have been another, another, relationship but because it was in that context it made things more for me tangible maybe realistic maybe whole also different words that come into mind yeah when i use the word impregnation it's more in the contemplative tradition we said things need to in french we said fécondé the sperm needs to fertilize with the egg fécondé or else there's no, there's no life, no? And I think um, awakening energy is like that. It needs to be fertilized, fecunde, impregnated, but it needs um, the, the different conditions, causes and conditions for that to happen. Yeah. Okay, so we can uh, end for today. This can be short but sweet. Um... I have one little last. Okay, so one one time I was attendant for Thai on Upper Hamlet, and it was I got into his hut in the morning before he woke up, and like when he wakes up, my job is to make tea. But it was like I didn't really know how to make tea, so like I started to make it, and then he just kind of pushed me out of the way. <laughs> He's like, "You don't know what you're doing. Just let me take." It. <laughs> but it was, it's very, it's very just this very honest kind of blunt like thing there was like a sense of humor and but i don't know it was, it was like we were like switching roles like he was making tea for me uh and it was kind of like he was giving me a little feedback a little a little whack you know but <laughs> but we were both smiling at the same time there was something funny about it <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think like any true realized beings, they know how to go low. We say, <laughs> reminds me of the evangels, you know. If you if you want to go high, you got to go low. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know we got, as God, you have to be very poor to enter into the kingdom of God. And I felt Thai, he served, you know, even when we were his attendant. He was a moment serving us just to teach us this humility. I think that you need on a path, you know, on a spiritual path. 
or else. I think the path is like a razor's edge. The, the longer you go, we, we don't have wounds, we haven't healed things, we can have great awakenings, but sometimes it's not too too impactful, you will. And I think what he taught is like you have to be very, you have to know how to serve, you know, and even as a master, I'll serve you. And I think that's a very, very deep teaching, huh? Very, very deep teaching. Yeah. So we'll finish. Uh, that's going to ring the bell three times just for us to finish. Yes, yeah. so I just invite the, the bell and we can just enjoy three sounds of the bell and just come back to the present moment. Mm -hmm.